Welcome back to the Across the Board podcast. <clears throat> As promised, we are joined by PFF analyst Brendan Leister. Brendan, how you doing today? Doing good, man. How about you? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining us today. I, I would ask John how he's doing, but I know he's had a pretty shitty day. Fought off a, a skunk <laughs> during his lunch hour break. So, uh, But uh, we're ready to talk some Browns. We're ready to um dive into this 2020 draft class that has you know from an outside perspective uh, maybe it's a bit hopeful but um promising traits at each pick and uh like i was talking to brendan and john right before we started recording is i think the biggest thing that struck me this weekend was their ability to add value by trading back but still getting what seemed like to be the best player available and at a position of need, which some of that is just attributed to um, luck. I mean, getting a player like Grant Delpit, where we did after trading back to get a fifth that we had originally traded, and then getting a Jordan Elliott, who, I mean, John was John was on the podcast with me live. I went nuts when we got Jordan Elliott. He was my favorite player in this draft. Uh, getting him in the third round, I thought was uh, amazing, and I think having um just the the amount of for lack of better words just brains in that front office and coaching staff combined really helped to just make a a very eventful weekend add future picks add value at the picks you got um and like brendan said before we started recording just getting hopeful depth in those late rounds with um you know very athletic and promising players but I was a long-winded introduction, but like Brendan John, do you guys have anything that stood out to you about this uh, weekend? Um, I really like the two trade backs. Um, that's something you know people are upset in the moment. They say, "Oh, why they move back 14 spots?" And and I mean, it's actually a no-brainer if you think about only moving back 14 spots in a draft and you get an extra third-round pick next year. I mean, that's that's stealing because you got to think if they're willing to trade back, that means they have a quite a few targets or, you know, a handful, maybe three or four guys that they're very confident they're going to get 14 spots back and you get that extra third a year yeah. from now. And then everybody's going to be stoked when, when they, when we're going into next year's draft and we remember that we have an extra three an extra four an extra five, I believe. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a no brainer type decision. And then also knowing that De- Delpit was their guy and being confident that nobody <laughs> was going to trade up in front of them at 44, or the teams that were just already there. Nobody was going to take him ahead of them. Um, those are just really shrewd moves. Um, I I would have... I went into the draft hoping that they would trade back, but I understand why they didn't, beca- or I should say in round one, because it clearly Wills was the number one tackle on their board. I don't think that Paul DePodesta is the type to BS. Um, you know, he's... He just came out and just said he didn't. They didn't think their top tackle on their board would be there, and so when he was, you know, any trade offers just went out the window, and they took him. Uh, but yeah, I really liked the way that they went down the board a couple times. Didn't didn't trade up any times, also, so they didn't, weren't giving up picks, giving up value, and they got guys that they targeted at value positions. Yeah, I think John. Then I'll let you go. Um, something that really struck me was um, going back, looking at those trade backs, and. I mean, I mean, it was ballsy jumping back and, you know, risking not being able to get Grant Delpit, who projects as, um, you know, your possible center fielder, uh, free, just like free safety that can cover sideline to sideline for, you know, three or four years where they have no 
depth at safety and really no future with their one-year deals to Sandeo and uh, Joseph. But the biggest thing for me was adding those third, fourth, fifth. Um, I don't remember the exact picks they had, but they got the extra fifth. They got the extra third. Um, Calais Campbell is one of the best edge rushers in the NFL, and he was traded for a fifth-round pick this year mm-hmm. to the Ravens, of course, because that's the <laughs> only position they needed, so they went ahead and got it. But if you don't end up getting, you know, say the Browns um, start out the season really well, an injury happens, uh, someone gets on the trade block, and someone's willing to part with their, you know, aging player that's had a bad year for a fourth-round pick, and now all of a sudden you take the question mark out of a, you know, what a fourth-round or fifth-round pick is statistically in the draft, and you add a, you know, Calais Campbell-type player to your team, it's uh, it's it's important for a lot of reasons. One, depth, and two, you know, the possibilities of a trade. But, uh, John, what did you think? I know you were pretty excited all week. Yeah, um, I was. I, I thought, well, I was really impressed with, I guess, the way they orchestrated the plan. Um, because, you know, it wasn't just, hey, let's trade down no matter what. Like, we, we like a bunch of guys, but let's, you know, it, I think in the recent past, obviously, you know, the Sashi is a very, you know, hot button, uh, hot, you know, name to say out loud. Because either people think, yes, great job, you know, we accumulated a lot of assets or, ooh, boo, you know, they, they traded down. They never got anything. They whiffed on all their picks, blah, 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 you know. Um, so, you know, it seemed like kind of the best of both worlds, like um, – they were just talking on ESPN today about how um, Tampa Bay basically, as soon as Carolina got on the clock, Tampa Bay was calling every team saying, we want to trade up because we want to secure a tackle. And so there's probably no way that they didn't call Andrew Barry and say, what do you, you know, we'll give you this, you know, whatever for the 10th pick. And they were like, no, we, Wills is our guy. We're not, you know, this extra third round pick that you're going to give us or fourth round, whatever it would have been to move up four spots. Like, you know, they weren't giving that up. So I think you know, sticking to your guns to a certain extent is something that Browns fans haven't seen um, in the recent past. It might have been just a trade down just to do it regardless, because the asset was more important than, you know, the player. And maybe you end up with Mekhi Becton or maybe you end up with Tristan Wirfs or whatever. But, you know, to single out one guy that they really liked, um, you know, that was I think that turns out to that should be impressive um, in the long run. And then the exact opposite in the next two rounds where you see them go. Hey, look, we're on the clock at 41. Indy is interested in this pick. The next two picks are um, was uh, Jacksonville and and um, the Bears. And, you know, they're probably sitting there going, look, there's just no way that maybe they had like a similar grade on Delpit and Winfield Jr. And they were like, look, there's just no way that both of these safeties are going to get taken. So let's move back three spots, get an extra pick. And we get one of our two safeties, you know, and I don't know that. Obviously, it's a bit of speculation. But but the point is, is that, you know, to. Uh, to extract value, to get guys you wanted to get and to get some value, you know, not only for this year, but for the future. I don't know how you you could be like upset. Like if it's if it's a market, you know, you're constantly like ahead of it. Right. Like you're never you know, it's not sunk cost stuff and it's not just like, oops, now we have to dig out of a hole like this felt like, you know, everything was really calm and under control and kind of the way you'd want to see it and like roll off. So um and then, yeah, on the live stream, like when we were doing the draft, like once Jordan Elliott was picked, you know, they could have lit the rest of those picks on fire. They could have shot him into the sun. I almost wouldn't have cared. I was so happy with Jordan Elliott. So it was fantastic. But, yeah, all in all, I really liked it. It was a good draft. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I actually have a point um, to make on what you said with the Wills pick. So I there's like two two ways to look at it. 
And I think it's important that we keep that in mind. So, so there's conviction, you know, mm-hmm. like they're, they have conviction that Wills is the top tackle in the class and they wanted him at 10 and they couldn't believe he was there. If maybe if Andrew Thomas falls to 10, maybe they would have traded out, been comfortable with Werfs a little bit later. Um, but since Wills was there at 10 and that was the number one tackle, they just wanted to take him, not take that risk of moving back. But then on the other hand, some people might call that overconfidence in their evaluation because there's so much variance in the draft with, I mean, you just don't know, like this this bunch of tackles at the top, you know. I mean, Josh Jones fell to the third round, but he still might be one of the best. I mean, we don't know. And Austin Jackson went at 18 when a lot of people thought he was, he really should have kind of flipped draft spots with Josh Jones. And um, But to make the point, you know, one one might argue that they should have taken that trade with Tampa Bay if it was offered, take that extra pick. That's another player. You know, what if you get another player that's similar talent-wise to Jordan Elliott and then you get Tristan Wirfs at uh, 14 or 13, whatever. Um, so it's like, it's an interesting balance where you're, it's like conviction or overconfidence. I give them the benefit of the doubt because I don't blame them. They believe he's the best tackle. They believe he's the best fit. They love the guy. They don't want to be stuck with their, I mean, what if San Francisco then takes Werfs at 13 and now you're stuck trading for Trent Williams, you're taking a player that's not a tackle at 14. Yep. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of variables in the whole thing. Um, but I think it's important to kind of discuss that a little bit and make both points because there are a couple different ways to look at it. And there's no, uh, you know, from a process standpoint, you can make arguments on both sides but really it's just going to come down to the outcome in the end and that's what we're all going to look back on with hindsight that's always 2020 <laughs> agreed yeah that's a good point i really think that um like one of the um like in, in the past and and a lot of this just so fresh in our minds obviously because of everything that you know we, we've been through as browns fans the last you know four or five you know seasons um but yeah like you know, at some point as, as, uh, you know, scouting department, as talent evaluators, right? Like you, you have to trust your opinion, right? You have to, like, you got to walk into work every day going, I am a better talent evaluator than any human being who has ever had eyes or has seen football or done anything remotely close to that. Because if you don't have that kind of confidence level, you know, that's a problem. Now that can get you into trouble, obviously, you know what I mean? It like definitely you, gets teams into trouble. Right. Yeah. Cause you have to be aware that like, that the difference between the best drafting team and the worst drafting team is like, it's like 5% or something on, on hits, you know, nobody's even hitting 50% on picks, you know, right. I mean, a team could have 10 picks in the draft. And if they come out with three solid starters for the long term, that's like, that's like a really good haul, you know? Right. Um, so it's, I would say that's, that's like overconfidence. It's kind of dangerous to have that opinion. That's like a Gettleman type opinion where he's never willing to trade back, you know? So uh, eight years um, in a row. Yes, that's correct. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so there's, there's different ways to look at it. Like the saints are that way. They're constantly just giving up value, trading up for their guys, you know, that, yes. that really puts all your eggs in one basket in, yep. in your evaluations. Like that really toes that line between, I think I think that more that's much more overconfidence when you when you're like that. You have to be aware of, you know, nobody knows everything. We all miss. Bill Belichick misses all the time. Ozzie Newsome misses has missed a ton. Eric DaCosta, whoever you want to say, are the best evaluators. I think it's always important to keep that in mind. I respect their decision to take Wills at ten. I think that's that's great. It was he was their number one tackle. If their number two tackle was there, number three, maybe they move back and try to get, you know, one of the others. But um, yeah, I, I think people need to, 
I think you, the teams especially need to be aware of that that unknown and like they need to have confidence in the board, but at the same time also be aware that like people have had these draft boards for years and years and years, and they're constantly wrong on the way that they place the pay- players and who they take. And uh, they're dealing with young men, you know, the, with a lot of variables once they get paid all that money. And there's just a lot of unknown and a lot of risk with those decisions. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Those are great points by both of you. And I guess since we already kind of started talking about them, it just transitions perfectly into the uh, first pick. And that was Jedrick Wills. You know, this is a guy that I not going to lie when CD lamb was on the board, you know, the selfish, like just wanting to see explosions, chiefs versus Rams, that Monday night game. Like I want to see that every single Sunday. <laughs> um, that part of me was like, well, John, we have to go CD lamb here, right? We have, I mean, we have to, but then, you know, they took Jedrick Wills and I was kind of, I was kind of down on it. I'm like, well, we left CD lamb on the board who, you know, by all means could be the next best wide receiver could also bust like you don't know but then like i was listening to joe thomas talk about jedrick wills and he had nothing but great things to say and i realized joe thomas isn't an nfl draft scout i realize he's not a offensive line coach i realize he's not even any in any part of an nfl organization right now but what he is is one of the best left tackles the nfl has ever seen so when i hear him talk about jedrick wills i tend to believe what he says now you know, the biggest thing is he played right tackle. I think he even played close to seven. He played 770 snaps at right tackle just this year. Um, and someone asked that to Joe Thomas on Twitter, and he actually replied to them and said, you know, at this point in his career, he doesn't have enough muscle memory at the right side. that It's not too hard to correct by Bill Callahan on the left side. Um, talking about how with practice and games, he'll get more snaps in this one year than he ever has. And his life on that side. So I think that was the biggest concern. But hearing someone like Joe Thomas talk to people about that transition, ease people's minds there. Um, and the more you look at Jedrick Wills, the more you think there's there's such there's such little that you can dislike about him. There are things if you nitpick his tape and stuff, but I mean, one sack in the past two years, uh five QB hits in the last uh two years, and that's on 936 pass blocking snaps and then probably the most mobile offensive tackle in this group in the run game but brendan what were your immediate reactions to this pick i'm sure they were better than mine which was pouty because we didn't get lamb (laughs) um immediately um throughout the process you know i i kind of i focused more heavily on Werfs and thomas um i was more confident in their fit in the scheme and looking back, I, I realized how big a mistake that was. Um, and I see why they valued Wills above all of them for the scheme. And the reason for that is um, I focused probably too much on. So for Thomas, it was, you know, just the steady down in, down out, you know, very steady in pass protection, um, steady in the run game, good mobility in the run game, good athlete. I mean, he wasn't a fantastic athlete, but he was still a good athlete. And then with Werfs, it was just the the power. You know, he looked um, and, and also proven in, you know, his pass block. Both those players' pass blocking grade was also better than Will's in college. Um, and 
Wirfs just looked to me like he was built to play in the outside zone scheme. I just thought, you know, he or Wirfs, yeah. So at Iowa, you know, they ran a lot of outside zone. He was consistently just dominating people on the backside, on the front side. Um, a little, he, I think the thing that I didn't give Wills enough credit for when you compare the two is his balance. And balance is a huge part of athletic ability. And that was something that I just did not give enough credit to Wills for. And I just, every time I would watch him, I saw a really powerful player. I thought he fit better in a gap scheme with the way that, like on down blocks, he just completely destroys people. Um, Just imagining him in more of a, yeah, just a more of a a gap scheme and inside zone team rather than an outside zone team like the Browns are going to be primarily you know they're going to do a lot of different things but it's going to primarily be wide zone they're going to run a lot of screens and so I just like people would talk about his athletic ability and I'd be like okay but he's not quite the athlete of Werfs and he hasn't been as solid all around and in pass pro as Thomas so he was always kind of like behind them and then when it came to the pure fit in the wide zone scheme I was always just like I don't know and then I would think more about those second tier tackles, I would just jump to them. Uh, not Becton. I didn't, I never was really in on Becton. I never liked that fit, but I just, I didn't give enough credit to Wills as his balance and his ability to change direction, you know, just get, get on one block and then find a linebacker in space. Also just, he's going to be really dominant in the screen game too. Just the way that he can locate defenders in space, change direction. He's such a nimble athlete in space. And I, I just, I didn't nearly give him enough credit for that. And that was a big mistake on, on my part. So when they made the pick, I was I was a little surprised because I expected it to be Werfs. I thought that he was just that that perfect fit. Um, I'll also say that, honestly, when I've watched Wills, I thought that he looked like he would be best at guard. And I still feel that way because of that pass blocking profile, it's, his grades just weren't quite as high as the other two guys. And uh, he doesn't have the longest arms. He's not the longest for a, a tackle either. Uh, but I think that in the wide zone scheme, Werfs before the draft, and I should have made this point about Wills as well, is Kevin Stefanski's offense was in the bottom three last year in true pass sets. And that's really going to help Wills as he adjusts the NFL, pass, uh, pass protecting against those great edge rushers, the best athletes in the world every week, because a lot of the pass attempts are rollouts and boots and play action and, and screen passes. And, and that really helps offensive linemen. Um, and especially also with the dedication that they're going to have to the run game and Nick Chubb being such a good runner and Kareem Hunt, if he's on the team, um, edge rushers aren't going to be able to tee off on him and just beat him up. It's not going to be like if they were running you know, 10 personnel, two by two, like a spread offense, and they'd just be able to tee off week in, week out. And I'm not saying that he's bad in pass pro, but I just think if you look at the grades, he wasn't quite as good as the others. And I will also say that if you take out like the first three games of this past season, his pass blocking grade was right up there with the other guys. Um, He just started the season slow, and then really his grades just really improved from there. Um, So my take is, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt on the fit. I mean, they know their scheme better than I do. That's for sure. They know, I'm sure. And I'm sure also because of those reasons I already gave, I didn't study him quite as closely pre-draft as I, as they did, of course. And they know the person, they know the background. And um, 
I like the pick. I mean, it it's not it's not a first round. I don't get to the point where I'm like, oh yeah, they took that guy. Yes. Like I don't get super psyched because I've done that in the past. I've learned my lesson. Like it takes time to figure out who, who the good players are, who the bad players are. And I think I've made this point on the podcast before too with um with you guys. But you know, on the offensive line, the key is just getting solid play. Mm-hmm. It's um just don't have any duds out there. Just don't have any terrible players. I mean, people get all psyched about the all pros and stuff, and that's cool. Um, you know, that's that's great if you have all pros on the offensive line, but the key is just having five solid guys that don't get beat consistently. Um, if you just have that, you you're doing a really you have a really good offensive line if you just have five solid players with no duds. Um and if he can be that, then I think it's a good pick and and he'll, you know, be the team's left tackle for a long time. And and also just to touch on not to be too long winded, but to touch on the the uh, you know, right tackle to left tackle thing. Yeah. I've I've kind of said the I've said the same thing as Joe Thomas because we've seen it time and again. If you look at like this is getting overthought so much. College teams consistently put their best linemen at left tackle. And when they transition to the NFL, they routinely move to right tackle or guard. We see it every year where guys come out in the draft and at the mm-hmm. combine, they see the guy move around. He was a left tackle for his college team. And Daniel Jeremiah or Joe Thomas or whoever says, that guy's going to move to guard in the NFL. Well, the media doesn't freak out when the guy's drafted. So why is the media freaking out right now? It's just because that's the only talking point that they have. And and I get it that right tackles have not moved to left tackle aside from like Tyron Smith. That's like the one example. And Bill Callahan was in, in Dallas to help him do that. But Jedrick Wills was protecting Tua's blind side. And so it's the same type deal. He's a left-handed quarterback. And Tua's the, le- the first left-handed quarterback in the NFL in like four years since Kellen Moore retired. Like le- left-handed quarterbacks are just a rarity at all levels. So you don't see that very often where the blind side is actually the right side. So I think people are just way overthinking this. And Joe Thomas is 100% right. And and I also agree with Andrew Barry from what he said before the draft about there is no value difference between right and left tackle. Like a tackle is a tackle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like Miles Garrett moves over and rushes over the right tackle all the time. And mm-hmm. some weeks he rushes over the left tackle and they move him from, you know, from play to play. Von Miller has routinely, routinely throughout his career rushed over the right tackles. Khalil Max done the same thing. There's a lot of guys like, it's not like old school NFL where the defensive end over the right tackle is this, run stopper and the guy over the left tackles this finesse freak <laughs> that's just not the way it is so people need to understand that you need a good pass protector on both sides and there's no huge skill set difference between pass protecting on the blind side versus the right side because sometimes the blind side is the right side if the quarterback has his progression starting to the left he can't see to the right all of a sudden and he might get strip sacked just like if if the player comes from his left so you need solid pass protection on both sides and I agree with what Joe Thomas said about him switching, and I agree with Andrew Barry about you know the value of tackles and how a tackle is a tackle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I think uh, just a couple things real fast. I, I was uh, like I was overwhelmed or enamored by Werf's uh, athleticism too. I think I fell into that a little bit when we initially did our offensive tackles podcast. I had him second behind Thomas. And then when we went to um, when it came time to post the articles and actually do a little write up, um, I switched it and I had Wills at second ahead of Worfs um, for the same reason. Also, Worfs sometimes 
I don't know, like he, he's athletic and crazy, you know, just the, the things that he can do at his size are just impossible. They shouldn't be, you know, humans shouldn't be able to do that kind of stuff. But, but he also seems to get into trouble a little bit. Like we saw a lot of stuff where he would be real, um, like perpendicular to the line where he's, you know, completely sideways. And now there's just no, there's no base. There's no punch arm. Like he's just getting eaten alive by, you know, any kind of rusher, whether it's a speed guy or a power guy or anything. So, and that I'm sure that's obviously that's just coaching stuff, but whatever, it's not, you know, the end of the world, but, but yeah, will seem to have less of those kind of, um, like, I guess, fundamental or technique lapses where, you know, maybe he's not as steady as Thomas, but you're just like, this guy just looks like, you know, he looks the part and he's mean as hell and the run blocking grade is phenomenal. And, you know, if it's just pass blocking stuff, well, again, we've said this before too, you have Bill Callahan. So, you know, if, if he's not going to coach up guys, then there's no point in having that guy on the, you know, in the, on the coaching staff. So, but, um, but yeah, so from a, from a pick standpoint, sure. I mean, it, you know, yes, obviously CD lamb or whatever is a sexier pick and stuff like that. But, you know, <laughs> Wills is, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of that pick The I, I don't mind it at all. Um, and, uh, as far as Joe Thomas goes, yes, he's not an evaluator, but I would say that he has probably earned the right to speak his mind on, uh, offensive tackles, uh, transitioning to the NFL. I mean, I'm sure nobody yelled at Picasso when he looked at another painting and was like, yeah, I kind of like that one. You're like, shut up, man. You don't, you didn't paint that. Like, yeah, I think we can let Picasso talk about stuff. It's cool. So. Yeah, I feel that. And, uh, I was going to bring up the offensive line here, but I kind of think it'd be better brought up when we like get to Nick Harris. Not that I think Nick Harris is going to come kick JC Treader out of town by any means, but that's uh, just something I want to bring up to you, Brendan, but let's go right into the second pick. Um, Grant Delpit, PFF had him ranked as their number one safety, and I can only assume that's because of what uh, Grant can do in coverage. We all know Xavier McKinney is this. If you go on YouTube and type in Xavier McKinney, you're going to see some hits that just make your like make your back hurt. I mean, these players are getting demolished, and Grant Delpit's not going to do that for you, but there's no other safety in this class that can cover the range that Grant Delpit does. I mean, and you hear... Like he's 200 pounds, you hear missed tackle, so you automatically think he's just like this small little guy out in the field. I mean, he's six three, and he matched up with tight ends pretty, pretty routinely. Um, I, I mean, outside of the tackling, which to a degree it is worrisome, but tackling, as far as like Denzel Ward and Greedy Williams, those are two guys that when they came in the league, tackling was their biggest. Like, can they do that? Um, and so far, tackling has not been the reason they have or have not succeeded in the NFL. It's, you know, miss, miss, missing coverages and stuff like that. So I don't think tackling is that important. At, he, he's not the worst tackler that's ever stepped on the football field. I don't know how to say it. Like, tackling is important, but what Grant Delpit does great in coverage, I think, makes up completely for what he does poorly in tackling, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I well, think tackling is back important. In the, I think what you're saying is we don't know that he can't do it. Like yeah. people that are saying that he can't tackle. I just think that's not, that's false. Like we don't know that for sure. That's, you know, if he had a high ankle sprain, which he said he did last year. Um, he did. He did. That, that's been talked about for a long time now. The quote, this is the best. Yeah. When he got asked about this over the weekend, he said, I'm so tired of hearing that I can't tackle. I might tackle you for asking that question. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm in, I'm in. That sounds good to yeah. me. So absolutely. Because. Now you know he played. He was tough as hell, and he played through that the entire season. So that's a phenomenal. A lot of guys, 
Yeah, I think he got hurt in October. I heard Andrew Barry allude to that, and um, and, it, and it does make sense if you look at his grades because his tackling grade actually like shot up in the playoff. Um, those three games, it was like what was it? S- it was like the three final games, so SEC championship, yeah, playoff game, national championship, yeah. yeah. So the tackling grade actually jumped up some. Um, so yeah, yeah there's a, probably helped I, him. I read a couple things about you know there was speculation that. <clears throat> his tackling was the worst in um, these games where, you know, I mean, LSU was beating everyone. But just, I mean, they were, LSU was already in the bus in the second quarter most games. <laughs> and um, I actually was listening to Steve Palazzola, PFF, talking about how you can just see, actually it might have been Mike Renner, I don't know, it was one of those two guys just saying, you know, you can see it in these games where they're up big that he would say, <clears throat> I'm going to take this chance here. I'm going to do this here where, you know, I'm playing Clemson in the like playoffs or playing Oklahoma in the playoffs. I'm not going to do that and hurt my team in that way. Yeah. So you wonder how much of it is, I, I'm a 21-year-old kid. I'm playing on maybe the greatest college team ever. And you hear that, you start getting overconfident. But, I mean, he also did have a missed tackle problem in 2018. But a lot of speculation there. I do know this. The kid can cover the damn football, and he does it pretty well. So, uh I guess what were, what was your reaction to getting him after even trading back in the second round? Yeah, so the trade back was huge. Um, I I was really happy that they got back that fifth round pick, and that was what I figured they were getting back when they moved back to forty four. I was just I was very happy with that. And then as far as the pick, I was I was really you know if I was gonna say I was like excited for a pick, that would be the one that I was probably most excited about. Um, I'll just say I'm really glad they took him over Antoine Winfield. I know that that was like a fan favorite for a lot of people. Yes. Um, and yes. I can kind of talk about that a little bit um, after I get done talking about Delpit specifically. But Delpit has unique cover skills. He's just a, a very fluid athlete. And he can play all over the back end and, and also come up to, you know, near the line of scrimmage. Um, you know, he can play as just a deep free safety like like we've seen. I'm not going to compare him to Earl Thomas, but, you know, that typical center fielder type role. He can play strong safety. He can cover the slot. He can come up and cover a tight end man to man. He can blitz. I mean, he, he can do all kinds of things within your defense. And I'm not going to hold the tackling against him too terribly because he just has unique cover skills. And I bet Joe Woods was in love with the idea of getting his hands on him just if you just go back and listen to Joe Woods in his introductory press conference, he talked about having safeties that cover like corners and Grant Delpit covers like a corner. If you just watch his like man coverage reps, um, I think that he, Carl Joseph, that's two interchangeable safeties on the back end. That'll be, you know, starting for them. Uh, Andrew Barry, and this is just smart. You know, Andrew Barry even alluded to having a big, big nickel role. You know, when they want to have three safeties out on the field, they're going to have that big nickel role, which is that third safety role. They said Delpit can even play that, and I, I agree with that big time. You know, if they want to have, because um, I think Joe Woods probably likes Sheldrick Redwine as well. I, I like Sheldrick Redwine from what he showed last year as a rookie. I mean, he was up and down at times, but he, he did grade the best of the rookies that saw playing time last year in three or 400 snaps. And I thought he, he played some good football. If you watch him move around on the field, he's also a guy that you can see that he used to play corner as well in college, early on in college. So I could see a situation where, 
yeah, Delpit is the free safety on paper. Joseph's the strong safety. But when you're in situations where you want to bring Delpit down and have him cover a tight end man-to-man, or you want to have him cover a slot receiver that's maybe a little bigger that you don't want to have Kevin Johnson matched up against, you can put Delpit at big nickel, put Redwine in at free safety, or you can put Sendejo in at free safety, who's who's become a very good free safety as time's gone on, just as a cover guy. Like, Sendejo's not going to be in on rundowns, but he can go out in on pass downs for sure and give you some good snaps. I think all four of those guys could play together. If you want to take a linebacker off the field and put Joseph in the box, now all of a sudden you have four cover safeties out there that are versatile, that can play different roles for you. Um, I just I, I like what they're doing with the safety group. I like what they've done, and I really like Grant Delpit. Just unique, unique cover skills, very, very fluid athlete. Um, and just to kind of like dig into why I like him more than Winfield, it's really just that Winfield, he's not as long. He's not nearly as fluid. I mean, there's tightness to Winfield if you just watch him move around. Like, he's not a fluid mover like that. He's a much stiffer athlete in the hips. Um, yeah, he had those interceptions that really like that's big splash plays that people notice. But if you have seven interceptions in a season, that's seven plays out of how many snaps? Eight hundred or a thousand, whatever. I mean, that's a very small percentage of your snaps, and that's why turnovers are not stable year to year from a def- like from a team defense perspective as well as an individual perspective. Turnovers are just not it's not stable. Like one year, Antoine Winfield. Maybe he gets seven picks. The next year he might get zero. Like that's so we can't overweigh those plays. Yes, he does have very good instincts and he has good ball skills and he had some of those big splash plays. But down to down, if you just watch their man coverage reps, you watch watch Delpit move around on the field versus Winfield. Um, I think there's a significant difference between the two. And I also think that Winfield's not a good tackler either. Like he, like Lance Zierlein, I loved the comp that he made to T.J. Ward for Antoine Winfield. Um, very good comp. And I'm not saying that Winfield's a bad player. I think he's a good player. Like TJ Ward was a good player, but they're both guys that, you know, they come, they come in a hundred miles per hour, diving at people's ankles. And sometimes they whiff and sometimes they make the big hit. And and that was exactly how TJ Ward played for the, for the Browns. You know, we saw that. Um, and Delpit, yeah, he misses his tackles a whole bunch of different ways, but I really value the cover skills. And I think that, that what he brings to the table compared to Winfield, who's, in my opinion, much more of just more of a strong safety, and he would be much more limited playing any type of man coverage role consistently or put back as a center fielder at free safety. I just think Delpit has much, much more talent. Um, and I just really like his fit within the defense. Yeah. Um, not much for me on this one. Like I, I just, I loved it. They got some value. They dropped down, you know, three spots. He picked up an extra fifth. Like it, it, you know, basically instead of taking Delpit at 41, you took Delpit and you got a backup center slash guard. You know what I mean? Like the, the value is just off the charts. Good. So, um, I guess just one question then Brendan, like if, if Delpit had come out last year, so instead of going through this 2019 season with a high ankle sprain and now all of a sudden there's tackling, blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, maybe it was there before, but now it's really pronounced. I just, I feel like there's no way he's the 41st or 44th pick off the board if he had come out the year prior. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. I mean, his yeah. grade really suffered this past season from whatever he was dealing with. And, and maybe he was just kind of ready to go to the NFL too. I think that's a real thing with these prospects sometimes where, mm-hmm. you know, they, they play really well early in their career and they, they're playing up to their potential and really dominating like Delpit did. And then that last year, it's like, 
He knows he's going to the NFL. He doesn't want to get hurt. And then sometimes when you're playing not to get hurt, you actually end up getting hurt. Because getting hurt, again, it's kind of like interceptions. Like, it's just, it's luck. It's, like, unstable. And there's, you can't control if you get injured, and you can't control if the quarterback throws a bad ball toward you. Like, that's, so, um, yeah, I, I don't really know how to explain it, but I know, I was looking at his grades, I think, yesterday, and like Delpit's grade was all the way up near 90, I believe, for his second year. And this yeah. past year, it fell all the way down to 65. So, yeah, um, I mean, that's a little bit of a red flag, of course, because he didn't quite play at that level that we saw the year before. But I did hear Andrew Barry allude to the fact that their scouts really taken into account the past two seasons. So it's not just it's not just that final season. It's it's the past two. And I'm, I'm sure that they've already asked him, you know, why did your play suffer some and the high ankle sprain was a thing, but he also mentioned that Delpit was really accountable and he didn't make any excuses for his missed tackles and, and all that. So um, this was the pick. This was probably, you know, I think Wills is going to be a good tackle for a long time for the Browns. I, I liked that pick too, but Delpit really gets me excited for what he brings on the defensive side. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And the versatility to um, play at multiple different positions. I mean, he played over 200 snaps at corner I mean, slot corner, he played 200 snaps in the box, and then obviously played most of his time as that rangy free safety. So that's going to be huge, especially with the Browns' lack of linebackers that you have any faith in, having a guy at Delpit size who can come in and you know hopefully cover a, a Mark Andrews or whoever it may be, a Chase Claypool now. I don't know, but having that versatility is huge, and coverage is something that you can never have to – you can literally never have too many cover guys in the NFL. Um the third pick, and my favorite for so many reasons, but one, I fell in love with Jordan Elliott as soon as I started watching him, and I just kind of thought, like, why is nobody talking about this guy? Uh, I mean, he's so quick. He's so quick off the line, so quick to get into the backfield. And his his play, I was so surprised when I looked at his stats, and, like, his stats are not on par with how he looks on paper. And then finally I looked at the PF, PFF draft guide, and they had him 25th on their big board. And I was like, okay, thank God somebody's talking about him because like Kinlaw is great. Derek Brown's uh, just an absolute monster in there, but like this guy needs to be talked about. Um, so I, I can't really speak as to why his numbers did not like stats did not translate with his play. I'm not an expert at that. What I do know is that he was number one in the sec at defensive tackle and run grade and pass block and pass rushing grade, which is better than Kinlaw or Brown. And he slipped all the way to, I don't know the exact pick 88, maybe, but the Browns, okay. the, The Browns got a future third round pick for that, which is just, I mean, I think the saints have been pretty terrible at drafting, um, whether it's trading up to go get Davenport and like trading away all your assets. Um, and then signing that, uh, their left guard, I can't even think of his name, Andres Pete, to that yeah. disgusting deal. I think they've done a pretty bad job, but I do respect the fact that they're trying to get Breeze whatever he wants like at the end of his career. There's two different ways to look at that, but I think they've done pretty bad for how good they've been, Breeze and Michael Thomas carrying and Cam Jordan. But anyway, um, I love this pick. Uh, he's had 35 hurries in the past two years, um, only seven sacks, but... I, I don't know. I just, I guess, Brennan, were you surprised he fell to 88? And also, you, we kind of already talked about it, but the value of getting an extra third-round pick is just, I mean, it's amazing. Um, I wasn't too surprised, honestly. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of tackles kind of in that group. They were bunched up after uh, after the top two, and it was really it's pretty bad defensive tackle class, honestly, aside from those first two. And then it was just a lot of guys that were all kind of like similar looking. And so you just had to sort through like, which one do you want? <laughs> um, and yeah, so I wasn't too surprised that he fell to that point. Um, definitely a very productive player. Um, you, you alluded to his grade being the best in the SEC. It was actually the best in the nation. And an overall grade as well as in pass rush grade. And I think he was eighth in run run defense grade. And and you know, sometimes it's kind of the same thing that I alluded to with the uh with the injuries and the interceptions. It's it's the same type deal sometimes where yeah, you might beat the guy up front, but if the receiver gets open and the quarterback throws the ball, like you're not gonna get the sack. Um, you're gonna get nothing on that play from a just a box score statistics point of view. Like the quarterback needs to hold the ball for you to get the sack. And for you to get a TFL, like the running back has to actually run toward you. Like you could destroy your, you know, the guy across from you. But if, if that running back just runs the other direction, it really isn't going to impact the play. It's not going to show up on the stat sheet. And, and that's kind of the issue with defensive tackle value in general. And why I was so glad the Browns didn't take one in the first round, as some (laughs) people had talked about. Um, But, uh, but in the third round, I really like this value with Elliot. I think he clearly fit, he just fits long term. He always made sense as the long term. If he's not the long term starter at three technique, I think he's definitely going to be a rotational guy that's going to give you give them value off the bench, give them a few hundred snaps of of value, defending the run as a pendant trader. You know, getting being able to play three downs, being able to be out there on a pass down and provide you some pass rush ability from inside, which they've lacked severely. Um, over the years, that has been a huge need for them. Just a, a player in the middle that can consistently get upfield and, and beat those interior offensive linemen and get in the quarterback's face, force him to move around, which allows you know Garrett to get the sack or Vernon to get get the sack. I just really like him. I like his motor. Very active player. Um, not the best athlete, but but on the field, he looks he he just looks athletic. Because I think he's just. He's just athletic for his size. That's that's what I'll get. That's what I'll say. But um, yeah, and, and I think also there is a chance that he starts in 2021. You know, I view him as a rotational player this year. I think Sheldon Richardson. That's a contract that they might be able to get out of, or they can definitely get out of if they want to after this upcoming season. He could definitely be in the mix to compete for the starting three technique position. Um, and then Billings and Ogunjobi are both slated to be free agents after this season. I think there's a decent chance just with how I think Billings is an ascending player. He's still young. He's 25. I think, I think that he's a player that they probably are going to want to extend if he plays the way that they expect. And I expect, so I could see maybe Billings and Elliot are your starting defensive tackles week one in 2021. And if not, then you know, it could be a situation where either they keep Richardson for that third year of his contract, um, or maybe they bring in another talented three technique above Elliott, and Elliott's not quite the starter, but he's still a rotational guy. But I really like the pick. I think he's just a very talented interior rusher and and penetrator. And as you alluded to, I mean, he's the 25th best player on the PFF draft board. They got three players in the top 25. Um, that's just that's huge value, especially when you consider that they got back that fifth round pick as well as a future third round pick. Yeah, yeah. To go from 
74 to 88. And I think what was so, um, you know, kind of being a fan uh, in that moment, what was so nerve wracking is that the Saints, of course, here's another Saints trading up move, right? So the Saints trading up to get Zach Bond. And, you know, that's a it's a higher ranked player. It's, a, you know, as a as a linebacker, edge rusher kind of, you know, um, hybrid type, you know, player that could kind of did a little bit of everything. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I my phone lit up because the text stream of friends that is like eight of us that were all Browns, Browns fans are like, wait, did they just pass on Zach Bond? Like, what the hell happened? What's going on? You know, here we go again. It's that old same, you know, mentality. And not to say that Bond isn't going to be a, you know, a, a nice player in the NFL and isn't, you know, whatever. But like th- this would be the moment where like I might if I'm Andrew Barry, I might have traded from 10 to 14 and risked it and said, you know, I, I, whatever, let's see what happens. OK, like just to have fun with it, pick up an extra whatever. This one, this one, I think this one took some stones. This is impressive because if I really liked Elliot, you know, and again, falling in love with your own evaluations can get you into trouble. Right. So you probably should have like, you know, maybe they like Gallimore. Maybe they liked, you know, there were two or three guys here that they could. Yeah, have I think there were with. probably there was probably a handful of players they liked at the pick. And, and sure. I kind of connected him. He was one of the defensive tackles. I thought <clears throat> was that mix for them, too, because I, I knew that they met with them before the draft. OK, with Elliot beforehand. Yeah. OK, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So this was impressive just from like, like I said, like I. I might have freaked out and just said, no, I don't care. I want Elliot. You know what I mean? But like just to, to just to have the poker face to be like, yeah, go ahead. You guys can take, uh, you know, Zach Bond or whoever you want here and we'll just wait and see what happens. So and just let it let it fall to you. Like, you know, don't try to beat the draft. Like, just let it come to you and do your best. And, and they nailed. It. I mean, this is this is a home run right here for the value of this player this late um, and then an extra third round pick for next year. I love it. Yeah. Especially those picks. Adding in those picks is just huge. Something that is, you know, can't be understated. And, um, you know, I, I obviously don't know, and I'm not trying to, you know, downplay Zach Bond. But it does, you know, you do wonder if Joe Schobert being able to go from edge to, you know, Mike linebacker from Wisconsin doesn't help people's opinion on Bond. Like, oh, well, they just had Joe Schobert do it, so maybe. I don't know. That's just something I've been thinking about because... You know, I mean, NFL people will use anything they can to try to get a step up. But uh, speaking of Zach Bond and linebackers, this the second pick in the third round, uh, Jacob Phillips, linebacker out of LSU, caught me really off guard. To be honest, I, I, after they drafted those first three, I was like, as a fan, you, I always am like, as if my opinion matters one damn bit. But I'm always like, oh, I hope they go here. Oh, I hope they do this. When, like, in reality, a lot of people need to do this. Take a step back and realize the Browns don't give a shit what you think. Um, They're going to do what's best. And, like, those three leading the Browns are smarter than most people on this planet. So it was, like, really just didn't care what they did. Just do the draft. I'm having fun now. I thought they really did well the first three picks. This one just caught me off guard. Um, Luckily, we were doing a live stream, and, John's brother is actually the defensive coordinator at Kent State, so he was on there to kind of ease our minds because the first thing, like me and John both went to the PFF draft guide and we're like, so this guy can't, couldn't cover a junior high kid. Like, obviously that's being a little rude. And Jordan Phillips, Jacob Phillips just won a national championship and he's a probably the most athletic linebacker in this class. And I had to, like, luckily Tom Kaufman was there to be like, you know, coverage straights in a linebacker 
aren't the biggest thing I'm looking for a defensive coordinator. Like that's something I think I can teach someone being this athletic specimen who can run sideline to sideline up and down, get after people and just lay the hammer on someone. Like that's something you can't exactly teach. It's kind of something that comes naturally. So hearing him say that, and then just kind of watching Jacob Phillips play and, um, Obviously, tackling is something that the Browns have been pretty bad at, if not, I'm assuming, probably top bottom five in the league the past two years. Um, quite literally, this is the best tackler in the draft. Um, you know, maybe people will say they 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 had a reach here, but if this was their guy on their board, they didn't reach, and, you know, he's fitting what they want. So, I don't know. It doesn't really matter what I think. I, Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski and Dee Podesta liked it, but... Um, Brendan, what were your first thoughts on Phillips, um, or what are your thoughts now? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I mean, I, I study the draft, I study the players, but I don't know every player that's in the draft. And when they took him, I didn't know who he was. I, yeah, me neither. I, it's embarrassing in my position. Um, I, I would love to come into the draft and know every single guy, but I mean, I just I don't have the time to take to know every single guy in the draft, and I really didn't know him very well. Um, I assumed that he was the linebacker that started this whole time next to Queen or next to Queen and the guy that he replaced because I knew that there was one linebacker in that in that group that had started this whole time and hmm. um and it was kind of like like Taki Taki pick last year I didn't really know him last year either so it was just very similar to that and you know that's that's going to happen sometimes we're not going to know them all but um, I think it's clear very very clear that the Browns when they watch the film from last year, it's like our linebackers can't tackle. Yeah. And, and if you just watch the past few years, like, like they're just not good tacklers. And like, yeah, I think there are times where I would look at Schobert on film and I would say, you know, he's athletic enough that he gets himself in a position that other linebackers wouldn't be able to get to. Like, like if, if you're a really slow linebacker, you're not even going to be able to get in a position to miss tackles sometimes because <laughs> you're just going to get outran. Yeah. I think sometimes his range and his instincts would allow him to get in positions where it's a really tough spot to make a tackle and maybe someone else was out of their run fit. And so now he has to like make up for that. But there's also times where he's just, just missing tackles in space and, and just not, yeah, just not making those plays and getting the guy on the ground. And that's what leads to chunk plays. And it's clear from looking at what they've done at linebacker this offseason, bringing in Goodson, bringing in Phillips, that tackling is paramount for this group at linebacker. Like they just, they want guys that get, get players on the ground. And, and Jacob Phillips, very good tackler, and Goodson, same thing. Um, I think, you know, watching Phillips, he's a rangy guy, like he's got long arms very explosive i would say not the quickest but he's very explosive coming downhill he can make hits i think this is also an indication like them moving sione takitaki to will linebacker um which he played some of early in that final season at byu and i, I actually originally i thought that takitaki would play will and mac wilson would play mike and then they kind of flipped it on us last year in otas i was surprised by that just looking at their skill sets from college um but now I saw where Taki Taki has confirmed that he's at Will linebacker now. So you have to assume Mac Wilson's at Mike now, which makes sense given his experience last season. Um, and Jacob Phillips is going to compete with Taki Taki at Will. Both those guys are very explosive athletes. Like they're both very, they're not like great changing direction in space, but they're very explosive coming downhill. And I think this is an indication one 
I think they're going to bring their well linebacker on pressures a good amount. And also, and this makes a ton of sense too, usually you have your Mike linebacker be the guy that has the green dot on his helmet. That's going to be Mac Wilson most likely. Mac Wilson mm-hmm. just played 900 snaps last year. He has the experience. They want to see what they have in this linebacker group. And you guys know that I'm not very high on Mac Wilson after the way he played as a rookie. But I'm, gonna, I'm still going to you know, give him the benefit of the doubt that he was a rookie. And, and as soon as he starts to play well, if he does, I'm going to give him credit. And I'm going to say that's awesome. He, he made huge steps forward in his second year if that happens. So I think he's going to be the guy that plays most of the snaps. I think Goodson's going to rotate in sometimes and play probably some Sam linebacker, I would say, whenever they're facing, especially like run-heavy teams that are in 21 personnel where they feel like they need to have that Sam linebacker on the field. But a lot of weeks, I think, like I was alluding to, playing that big nickel, you know, playing that third safety, they can bring him in for the Will linebacker. Or you can move down Joseph and take out the Will linebacker, put in a third safety, and you have options because Joseph's mm-hmm. versatile and Delpit's versatile, and you have you just have players that can do that on pass downs. So I don't think that the coverage ability is really paramount for them at, at Will linebacker. It's clearly not because Taki Taki spent most of his career at BYU as an edge guy. And Phillips, um, you know, he just doesn't have a proven track record in coverage. And I think, you know, if it's a run down, obviously teams, they don't just run or pass based on the down. You know, there's a lot of downs in the NFL where you don't know if it's a run or a pass. You're just guessing. And so on those on those downs, I think they're going to coach these guys to get depth when they drop in coverage, keep things in front of them, make the quarterback throw underneath, and then they're going to use their explosiveness and closing speed to come up and make big, big hits and get guys on the ground in the flat take those plays that maybe last year when guys were out of position that would have gone for eight or 10 yards, make that play stop at two, keep it at second and eight. Don't let it get to another first and 10. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's kind of the way that they view that position in the defense. And it does make sense. And, um, there's another thing that I was, Oh yeah. And, and also, you know, Patrick queen went first round and I did like his, I liked his talent plenty. You know, if he was there in the forties, I would have been interested in him as well, just because, you know, he's got that, he's just got that natural talent. You know, he can run, he's good in coverage, good run player, but, but Patrick queen doesn't have a very big sample size. Like that's a huge risk. And and I know that the Ravens ended up with him, So this will make the audience feel a little bit better, but like, that's a big risk. Just, he only he just got thrown in there for like the final eight games of his last season. Jacob Phillips was the guy that LSU had out, the, out there for the past two seasons. If you watch Devin White highlights, number six is out there next to him all last season. He's out there all this past season too. Like Jacob mm-hmm. Phillips was the guy LSU wanted on the field all the time. So that speaks to what they thought of him as a player that they had him out there over the first round pick, Patrick Queen. Um, I get that. You know the thing with with the draft guy and the thing with, you know, PFF, the way that players are valued is, you know, it's, it's all in a vacuum. It's like value coverage, you know, like, so just in general players that covered better are going to have a higher grade, but that's not really taking into account like one scheme fit, but also that nuance of, well, if you get this guy and he's really good against the run and he can be coached up in coverage, Maybe he's not quite the cover player that you want out there on a pass down, but he can be taken off the field. And and now his value in the run game is really what he's out there for. And you have a pass cover player out there instead of him on pass downs. Um, so that's kind of how I view that pick. You know, I didn't know who he was really at the time, but I've 
but I understand it. And I wouldn't be surprised if he beat out Taki Taki either. It, it just, it really wouldn't surprise me because Taki Taki wasn't a great tackler in college at all. Like he missed a lot of tackles in college mm-hmm. and his change of direction skills are even worse than Taki or even worse than Phillips. Um, just watching film of each guy. Um, so that it'll be interesting to see how that battle goes at will linebacker. Yeah. I think the other thing, John, sorry, then I'll let you go. No, but go I just ahead. thought of this is at least, um, and not that this is what, how you want to build your whole team. Like, oh, this guy has a glaring weakness, so we got to get another guy who also has a glaring re- weakness, but he covers that guy's weakness with, like, Delpit and Phillips. At least you're, you know, it seems like they understand and have some sort of plan. Like, okay, we got a coverage guy. Um, so, like, you know, you're, you know, like most teams, we value coverage. You can never have enough coverage. But we still don't have tackling. So, like, maybe we take a risk on a guy who wasn't good in coverage, but he was a great tackler. And so, you know, you have guys on the field at the same time, potentially, that can kind of mitigate each other's weaknesses. Obviously, in a perfect world, you have a linebacker, safety, cornerback. They can all tackle and cover perfectly, but it's not a perfect world. And the Browns are rebuilding from a 0-16 season, not three years ago. So, you know, they've come a long way, and I think that they finally have a plan. But uh, that's all I wanted to say about that, John. Sorry, what yeah. were you going to say? No, that makes sense. That's a good point, um, especially the part about, you know, the how far they've come. I think sometimes that 0-16 year feels like, you know, it was like last century. But, I mean, it's it's really, really recent. So, to yeah. you know, to put this together that fast and even doing it through, you know, Hugh Jackson and Freddie Kitchen's coaching regimes, like it's – you've done – You've done a lot in a little time, so I think they they should be commended for that. That's a good point. Um, So I guess what I wanted to ask you, Brendan, was, um, you know, we we can speculate about, um, you know, yeah, I wish they would have taken CD or taken CD Lamb and, you know, but that changes the whole dynamic of the draft. Like instead of a tackle, it's a receiver. And now what happens after that? Um, You can always, though, look at um, the same position, you know, and say, okay, so you guys took Jacob Phillips at 97. Well, then Malik Harrison came off the board next to Baltimore, oddly enough. And then, of course, like 10 picks later, the first pick in the fourth round, um, the Bengals took Akeem Davis-Gaither from Appalachian State. And so maybe give, um, I guess, just talk about that and give Browns fans like, so what? what's the what's the evaluation there? Like, what's the, you know, what did the Browns get with Phillips that maybe uh, the Ravens and Bengals didn't get with their picks? Well, I think it's really easy to like compare and contrast uh, Phillips against Davis Gaither for one, because like Davis Gaither from all I saw of him, like he spent a lot of time on the edge in college. So it's just completely different. Like it's, it's a, it's a huge pro- projection, you know, projecting him to off ball. Like Phillips has played the role he's going to play. Like mm-hmm. you've got like 2000 snaps or, or whatever it is of you know him playing a type role that he's, He's already, he's doing, he's done exactly what you want him to do. Basically, you're just going to try to mold him in your own vision within the defense. So I think that's, that's clearly one, one thing that he has, you know, on that player. And then comparing to Malik Harrison, they're just completely different types of movers. Like Malik Harrison is a stiffer athlete. He's 250 pounds. Like he tested very, very well at the combine. And I think Ohio State does as, as well a job as anybody at preparing re- players to go to the combine and perform really well and like maximize their performance. And you could say the same thing for LSU, of course. So I'm not saying, you know, actually, if you look at the way they tested, it looks like they're similar. But if you watch them on the field, they're really not similar athletes at all. Um, a lot of people have said, and, and I, I tend to agree, you know, I liked Malik Harrison in the draft. And a lot of people are like, 
like people just think he's a two down like plugger, like just a two down run player, you know, and he's very good in run fits, but he's very stiff, like in space and in coverage, he's just kind of awkward. And, um, and I did like him. I would have, you know, I would have liked that pick, but I can't see him really playing well linebacker. I think he's definitely a Mike um, just because he doesn't have the fluidity that uh, Jordan Phillips or Jacob Phillips does. Uh, just completely different types of movers. Like Jacob Phillips is 229 pounds. Malik Harrison is 247, I think. Uh, different body types. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Malik Harrison really, in space, he missed quite a few tackles too. And, and that clearly would have turned the Browns off if, if that's what they're looking for a linebacker. They just they want rangy guys that, that get in position to make tackles and they don't miss. They want to end those plays near the line of scrimmage. And, and I remember times, this is more anecdotal, but I, I know that this was something that came up with him because I watched quite a few Ohio state games, but in space Malik Harrison, he would miss tackles quite a bit. And I think that stiffness and, and that like, he, he just, he's just like a, he's built like the big old school thumper. Like he's built like it. Like I know some people called Jacob Phillips a thumper, but like he, he's not built like, like the old school prototypical thumper at all. Um, yeah. yeah. Just, it's just, if you watch him on the field, like that's, that's really not the vibe you're going to get. Like he, he drops in coverage and it's like, okay, that guy, that looks like a guy that can cover Malik Harrison drops in coverage. And it's like, he doesn't <laughs> look comfortable in space at all. No, so really awkward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just different types of athletes. Um, yeah. Like clearly different roles. Like I would compare Malik Harrison more to BJ Goodson. Like the way that they're built, the way yeah. they move around, like it's, it's much different. And, and I get that like Goodson's not good in coverage and, and Phillips, you know, on paper isn't, but you can project the movement skills and the traits to a role. And and I cannot imagine Malik Harrison playing well linebacker for the Browns. It's just, and, and clearly like put him next to Patrick queen. If that's your two starters, like queen is clearly the well linebacker and Malik Harrison's clearly the Mike. Um, and yeah, it's just a completely different uh, different type of athlete. Well, you you just, like, right there when you said, you know, Harrison kind of projects more as, like, a, a B.J. Goodson, and that's outside of just not being what they, you know, really want. They probably, I mean, Malik Harrison's a fine tackler, but Jacob Phillips was the best tackler. Um, so, one, they wanted that, and two, if they already have a Malik Harrison-type player, there's really no point of getting two of them to you know, kind of just share snaps from each other. So that's probably another reason right there why they uh, ended up going with Jacob Phillips outside of his, you know, crazy, like just the the amount of range he has and being able to make the tackles that he gets gets himself into situation to make are awesome. And then also last thing I'll say about Phillips is like, I say this every year with Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, I don't care who it is. Obviously a little bit of like national championship effect, maybe a little, I don't know if the Browns maybe fall under as much. Like, I don't want to toot the Browns' horn too many times, but like, those three guys running the ship right now are some of the smartest men in the NFL right now. So, you know, you wonder if they fall into it. Um, you do see teams fall into that, but um, yeah, Jacob Phillips. I mean, I have we, a stat, by the way. Um, yeah. I just looked up. I just looked up how many tackles Malik Harrison missed in his career. So he missed thirty tackles in his four years at Ohio State. Missed ten. This past season, he missed 16 in 2018, Ooh. missed three the year before that, and then one his freshman year. Um, and then if you look at, like, when the competition got really good near the end of the season, he missed 
one against Penn State, three against Michigan, two against Wisconsin, three against Clemson. So that was why I was remembering mm. those plays was because those were the plays that were kind of burning my mind. And and I was a yeah. big you know fan of his game, so I was disappointed when I saw those plays against the good competition. And then just really quick, I'm going to look up uh, Jacob Phillips. I'm going to look up his number if you guys don't yeah. mind. Yeah, yeah and while you were filling in time, actually it's about Grant Delpit. Is I read a stat that, I don't think he missed a tackle. He might have missed one in that college football playoff run. I uh, heard that on a podcast today. So, you know, that also kind of alludes to the Delpit. Like, was he bored? You know, was he kind of just playing just playing games out there? But So when it did come down to the competition being there and the game being on the line, like Delpit was able to make those tackles, which is huge. Yeah, yeah he was. His tackling grade went up substantially in the final three games of the year. And um, so, and then to compare with, Phillips. So, and I'll also mention, so Malik Harrison had played 1962 snaps in his career. Jacob Phillips, 1621, so a little bit less. And Phillips missed five tackles this past year, 12 the year before that, and one the year before that. So 18 in his entire career. So that's, uh, that's, that's a lot less. Yeah. yeah, especially well, tackle, really and the tackling grade is way different too, which accounts for the ratio too. Because like tackles in a vacuum is not like that doesn't really. Yeah, like, if you had a ton of tackle attempts, and you were like the percentage is what matters. So tackling grade is what I'm going to give you now, and that's you know for this past season it was 63.5 for Malik Harrison. The year before that it was 65 for Jacob Phillips. This past year was 88.8, which I think was best in the nation, or it was way up there. And then 71.2 the year before that. And then the year before that, I was 73.8. So comparing the two, you know, it's it's really not close. If you're looking at just tackling ability to get guys on the ground in space, it's... it's yeah, and, and I don't think that the Browns, um, you know, are building their roster to just beat their division. But it is important. You play your division... For six game, like six of your games are against the Bengals, the Ravens, and the Steelers. And last year, playing the Bengals, who are just, they were a pitiful roster. They were a terrible roster. I went to the game in Cleveland. Joe Mixon couldn't get brought down. Now, I mean, Joe Mixon's a very fine running back, but nobody could tackle him. I mean, I know Joe Schober missed a few tackles in that game. Mac Wilson was just, I mean, kind of like he was the rest of the year in that game. They couldn't bring Joe Mixon down. And then obviously, the Ravens have. Mark Ingram, Lamar Jackson, and then with the Steelers, James Conner, if he's ever healthy. Like it's a it's a division with a lot of really great runners. So one, not having people that can tackle, and then two, bringing in the best tackler in college football last year is uh, I think it's I think it's a smart move. Obviously, we don't know, you know, like Brendan said earlier, hindsight's twenty twenty. So right now we don't know what's gonna be. In a year we'll know if Jordan Phillips was um, you know, worth did I say Jordan? Is it Jordan or Jacob? It's I think Jacob. Jacob Phillips. Everybody, Jordan Phillips plays Jordan for the Bills. I know, he plays I for the Bills, so I just keep wanting to. But uh, yeah. anyway, we'll we'll move on from Jake um, Phillips. I'll just start saying Phillips. Um, but the fourth pick for the Browns was Harrison Bryant, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because um, we want to. We don't want to keep running here all night. But Harrison Bryant was, you know, someone that <clears throat> PFF. Like his grade was just exceptional each and each year. They had him as the sixth ranked um, tight end in the class. 
but uh he's only six he's um he's six five two forty three so he's like I mean that's kind of the way the tight end position is going but obviously he's not just this huge like Gronk or Zach Ertz type of player but there's um tape out there it was um I can't remember it's at right now um Hawaiian Browns guy I think it's Hawaii surf I can't think of his oh name. it's a uh, Mike Krupka that's his name. yeah yep. yeah I was texting him today yep yeah he has nothing but the dogs podcast um yeah, yeah he posted um tape of Harrison Bryant blocking against Ohio State who you know had one of the best defensive lines in the country and you know he was holding his own on the inline blocking and I believe I heard Stefanski say today that I was listening to the press conference post draft and I think he said that um Florida Atlantic actually ran the outside zone scheme with um Kiffin down there so I think just at this is a guy that was probably on their board, probably wasn't top priority. I mean, having tight end depth is something that was probably important to them. But um, Barry says time and time again that David Njoku is part of their long-term plan, but obviously you have to wonder how much Njoku is going to want after next year and yada, yada. But I think Harrison Bryant sitting there in the fourth round was just like, a, I mean, this is the best player available. It might not be the most glaring need on our team, but this is a spot where fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh rounders, you're really just throwing up a prayer I mean, the, the chances that they turn out to something is so low at that point anyway. Um, but, I mean, it's a good value pick. He's uh, I mean, a, a very good receiving tight end. He holds his own in the blocking. Obviously, he needs to still get better at that. But, yeah, what did you think? This is a, this is a, tight, this is a deep tight end cl- uh, group that was just so, you know, pretty pitiful for the past few years now. Yeah. Um, so, to start off, so... I think with Harrison Bryant, yeah, so really good PFF grade. So, like, out of all the tight ends in FBS, he had the highest overall grade, I believe, and then the highest receiving grade. Uh, he was just a very – he was very much the the focal point of what they did at FAU. Um, so they, they just, you know, pelted him with, you know, with targets, and they <laughs> used him all over the field. He was in the slot regularly. They would, you know, put him out wide. They would use him uh, more off the ball, you know, there's probably some snaps where he had his hand down, but it's definitely not something he did a ton of. Um, but I, I really just view him as, I think, long-term being realistic and practical about the pick. I think that he's going to be mostly a... Uh, I'm not, I don't think depth is the right word because they're going to use three tight ends sometimes. Mm-hmm. But more of just the H-back. Like, he's going to be... And it's kind of... It's funny because, like, physically, if you look at, um, like... Do you know what RAS is? Like that guy does the RAS for different yeah. prospects and stuff. Yeah. So it's like the athletic measurables and the percentiles of how they measure up against other players. Well, Irv Smith and Harrison Bryan are very close. You know, and mm. Irv Smith was that tight end that they took from Alabama last year. And if you watch the way that they used Irv Smith, he he barely ever has his hand in the dirt. Like he's an H back, clearly. Like the guy is not, he's not an inline tight end at all. And, and something that stands out between the two players is they both have really short arms and that impacts their catch radius and the way that you can use the players. It also impacts them as blockers. Harrison Bryant, I don't understand how people, like I haven't seen people really touch on this much, but his, his arm length is in the first percentile. And it was like the first thing that I ever noticed when I started watching him. Because when I saw that his grade was so fantastic a few months ago, I immediately was like, 
well, I'm going to go watch him because I think the Browns are going to be interested in tight ends. And then we saw who they met with before the draft. If if you see those lists, like they met with quite a few of the tight end prospects. So it was kind of clear that they wanted to add another player there. And it makes complete sense because when you're going to use two or three tight ends, you need, you need two and then you need two more behind them. And then you probably need another one on the practice squad. So you need a lot of playable depth at the position. Um, but yeah, it, first percentile, like 30 inch arms, and it really shows up. I like it's my opinion, and and it stood out before I even knew that it was in the first percentile too. Um, but he hmm. just doesn't have length, and, and that's gonna that's gonna keep him from being an inline player, in my opinion. I could be wrong. It's gonna keep him from being that player that you want to isolate. I know some people have talked about using him sometimes, like as an isolated tight end on the backside of plays when you want to, you know, just put him like one on one with whatever defensive player you talk about. But I think if you're going to do that with one of the tight ends, you want to aim higher. Like let's use Hooper in that role or Najoku, or maybe if Najoku leaves in two years, we're going to like the Browns are going to replace him with another talented player. It's not like he's just going to walk out the door and Harrison Bryant's going to suddenly move into that tight end two role um, without any competition brought in. You know, if this team wants two talented tight ends, so if Najoku leaves in a couple of years, you got to expect they're going to bring in another talented player that projects that way. Um, Hooper, like for example, Hooper has 33 inch arms. Like Najoku has like really long arms. And this was something I started to pay attention to within the past couple of years, really with tight ends. Because with uh, Seth DeValve, you know, he had really short arms as well, and it really impacted his catch radius and the way that an offense can use him. Because those players are not going to be able to block these these edge edge players like on the line. They're not going to be able to put their hand in the dirt and block those guys. When those guys have really long arms, um, they're just going to knock the little T-Rex arms down and, you know, make plays. I think he's better suited as an H back where he can get out in space and he can block linebackers, um, uses athletic ability to just stay in the way and seal them off. And, and then also he's also a good route runner. He has a good feel in space. Um, not a great athlete, but good enough. And I think you can scheme in production too. So he's a very playable option as the third tight end long term. But I don't think people should go overboard and say this guy's going to like unseat Hooper or unseat Njoku because that's just, it's just not reality if you look at the physical profile and really study the film and the, 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 the way the skill set projects in an, into an NFL offense. Um, I think it's much more likely that he competes with Carlson this year for the third tight end role. I could even see Carlson beating him out maybe as a rookie, which which would not be the end of the world at all. I think there was a time maybe when Jordan Cameron was a rookie, he might have been fourth at one point. Um, it's not it's not the end of the world if this player is inactive for you know half the season and then maybe he comes up midway through the year and starts to give you some H-back reps. Um, but yeah, I, I view him as the guy that's going to be on the field mostly in 13 personnel. He's going to, you know, if one of the first two guys get hurt, yeah, he's going to be on the field now. Um, but it's a good depth pick, and it sounds like they really like the player. Um, but it's important to realize the physical limitations that he has and and just be realistic about the role that he projects to long term. Little impact yeah. to uh, trivia question. He's so Harrison Bryant's the first college tight end to have a thousand receiving yards since. Uh, do you know who? Either of you guys? Who? I just read um, it, but I forget. Since 2013. 2013 was the year. 2013. Yeah, I read it when I was on. 2013 would have been uh, the 2014 draft. 
Oh, man. Travis Kelsey? Mm-mm. No. I'll give you his quarterback. His current uh, his quarterback then is his quarterback now, oddly enough. Oh. Baker. Wow. Oh, okay. So it wouldn't have been Andrews back. in 13, would it? Nope. It's before that. It's Texas Tech. Wait. Oh, wow. Did he, his tight end right now is Baker? So, <clears throat> no, no, no. The, the tight end who had 1,000 receiving yards in 2013. Jay Sternberger? Uh, Jay Samaro. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Jets was his, okay. was his quarterback uh, at Texas yeah. Tech, and now his quarterback is Baker Mayfield. So that's that's what I meant by that. So I meant oh, that properly. So, yeah. So, but yeah, Jason. Yeah. yeah. Which just stunned me. Like for, I don't know, you don't look at like receiving yards for tight ends. Like when they said, you know, the first one with a thousand, I was like, wait, what? You figure like probably three guys a year get a thousand yards. You know what I mean? Like, but it's, I mean, a 12 game season sometime, you know, for non bowl teams and stuff like that. Maybe, you know, it's all kinds of crazy stuff. So yeah, impressive, uh, at least on, you know, on that aspect from a production standpoint. So that's yeah, good. I didn't, I didn't mean to like talk down the player. I think oh, it's no. a good value, oh, I don't think for, but I think it's just important to be aware of what, what you're getting. Um, and, and also yeah. like, like people, like someone came at me today and was like, he won the Mackey award. He's clearly <laughs> good. Like, I mean, there's a reason he's there in round four. There was a lot of tight ends that went over him and this is a really bad class. There's some physical limitations with the player. And and in that offense, like he was their guy. Like they pelted him with targets. And I get it. Like he he's talented. And and another thing that I'll give him, and I, I do like this aspect of the pick, he's clearly an overachiever. Like, like this is clearly an overachiever. And you like drafting players like that. Like I would mm-hmm. consider Baker Mayfield an overachiever. Yep. Like mm-hmm. to come from like two-time walk-on to what he's become. You know, like those players that are hungry that go from walk-on status or, or like offensive lineman to transitioning to tight end to all of a sudden being able to play in the slot and play as an H-back like that's you know that's that's a big deal and and I wouldn't be surprised like I okay I would be surprised but I wouldn't be like completely shocked if the guy like you know lived up to a little bit higher expectations I, I really don't think he'll ever be like a tight end like the first tight end for a team that's just you've got to aim higher you know but but as the like the second or third option, as the main H back for the team, I think he can fill that role and and he's suitable. And you know if the, if you get four good years out of him as your H back in this offense, like that's a really good pick in round four because a yep. lot of them don't pan out. A lot of them are gone in two or three years. So I I saw real fast. I saw that uh, the the Twitter conversation today. Right. I just happened to catch it and I was just like, I'm like sitting there dying because I'm like. This guy has no clue. Like, if if there is a more like nuanced and fair judge of talent, like, you know, on Twitter than you, like, I would love to meet that person. Like, let's have that person on the podcast as well because, like, it's not you know, like things can be shades of gray. Like, it's not you're not saying that this is the worst tight end pick in the history of the NFL draft. Like, you know, yes, he won the Mackey Award. That's great. That's fantastic. But like, if the guy has thirty inch arms. And like somebody has to like tie his shoes for him, like when he gets dressed to go out on the field, that's a problem. Like, and it's okay to say that. It's okay to say the fourth round pick that you just took from Florida Atlantic might not be, you know, George Kittle. Like that's all yeah. we're saying. You know, there, there's a there's a range yeah. there. He might fall in right. it. So yeah, and he ran in the four scary. sevens too, and that that oh, that contributes yeah. also. Like he's not as fast. Like he's not as fast as. You know, for example, like Najoku, like he just doesn't right. move that way. There's not a lot of tight ends that have ran slower than four seven that have really amounted to much. Also, if you just yeah, look I, at forty times over the years. Yeah, yeah. I think, and uh, 
we've kind of we, you talked about Ninjoku's arms. Uh, they're th- they're thirty five and one fourth at the combine, yeah. and, and it, ten it shows hand. up. Look at yeah. look at what like just watch his highlights. I went back and watched it today from 2018-2019 season. Like the way he goes up over people and catches the ball, it's com- it's a completely different element. Mm-hmm. Players like OBJ, Landry, like uh, Najoku. We're going to talk about a- another player a little bit later that has really short arms too, and that impacts that player's versatility and ability to go up and get the ball. But like arm length does matter, and and you see like when you're evaluating players, the guys that have really long arms, those guys have the ability to play big. And they can go up over people and make those plays. It's not just vertical and, and broad jump, which Harrison Bryant doesn't really stand out in those categories either, but it's arm length matters. And especially for a player that, you know, he's just an H back because of that. And and that's okay. Yeah. I yeah. Think, let's sum it up by saying this. The there's something to be said for succeeding at, you know, the collegiate level and doing what he did and being the first receiver with a thousand yard or tight end with a thousand yards and, you know, six seasons, whatever. Um you know, despite those limitations, despite not being the fastest guy, despite not being the biggest, you know, the best athlete or the longest arms. Like, so, you know, that's great. Good for him. Like he obviously has some kind of a skill set and was able to achieve things at a school where you wouldn't expect that kind of talent really to come from. So, but he's a fourth round pick for a reason. And that makes sense. So, you know, let's see what he does. He's going to get an opportunity considering Stefanski's offense and stuff. So, you know, he'll have a chance to prove himself. Let's see what he does. Yeah, I agree. And just real quick before we move on to Harris is, I'm someone that's always been overly optimistic about David Njoku. Still am. I still think he's he's 23 years old. Harrison Bryant's 22 right now. David Njoku's been playing the tight end position far less than Harrison Bryant has in his career. Like He came into the draft as an inexperienced tight end. And, uh, I mean, the problems he has in the NFL with drops are kind of what he had a problem in college. And I think, I think having... You know Austin Hooper and having Kevin Stefanski, Lord, having a Kevin Stefanski who wants to run the two tight end system and the way that you know this the outside zone scheme with the rolls and the bootleg and the play action are able to open up a guy like David Njoku who if he's you know ends up linebacker one on one he gets the ball. I mean it's I mean he's gonna win ninety percent of the time. He's uber athletic, but. That's it. I mean, he has to prove it on the field. I mean, that's what it comes down yeah. to. I think he's going to help them mitigate their lack of depth at receiver also. Like, yeah. I really think that they're going to just move him all around and it's going to, they can just stay in 12 personnel and play in formations where it looks like 11. Yeah. Mm. And he, Makes sense. you know, he ran a 4 6 40 in a um, sub seven, like three cone drill. He's able to move in the open field. Very I mean, good. and then. His arm length and his 38-inch vertical do a little bit for something when uh, Baker throws the ball in his vicinity. But That's why they um, picked up his option today, so you're going to get to see him exactly. for another uh, two so years. Pumped. So pumped. And yeah, I'm pumped. Only we $6 don't have million to too. That's a steal. It's because it's, of the nature of what tight ends are paid. Yep. Yeah. And I'm, so, I'm glad we can you know, quit hearing. Harrison Bryant's going to take David Nchoku's starting spot. Like, we got a long <laughs> way to go till that. Um, speaking of a guy that's, I mean, Opposite of David Njoku, not really a physical freak in the sense of how his body is, but his his combine times were all great. I mean, 87th percentile on the 10-yard split, which is really nice. You really like that for an interior offensive lineman, any offensive lineman. 40-yard dash was 86th percentile, which I, I'm not someone that looks into a 40-yard dash for a— like, if you can run, you can run. I'm happy with that. You don't need to be Mekhi Becton out there. But uh, he has a little bit of a vertical— Nick Harris, uh, center out of Washington, you know, um, his arm length is not 
that is not really what you'd want at right guard if that's where they're transitioning to. You know, he's probably long enough to play center and not really have any options. But also, Andrew Barry said in his press conference, and so did Kevin Stefanski, that like they 100% expect Nick Harris to fight, you know, Teller for that right guard spot. And, you know, also, I'm not trying to speculate, not trying to say what the Browns should do, but it's pretty proven in like recent history that having a super expensive offensive line doesn't really translate to Super Bowls or, you know, uh, you can't pay the positions that are um, wide receiver, quarterback, defensive end corner. But uh, Tr- J.C. Treader's, you know, slightly expensive. I mean, albeit he is one of the better centers in the game. He's super tough, doesn't miss games, even on a high ankle sprain, which is just unheard of. But uh, anyway, Nick Harris led up two sacks in the past two seasons, four in his entire career, only one hit in the past two years. Like, this guy can play, um, the, but obviously he was there in the fifth round, so there's something there. But uh, I don't know, good value pick in the fifth round for sure, depth at the offensive line position. Yeah, um, actually, this was another pick that I was I was excited when they made it, and um, I wish I would have expected it because <laughs> – Coming into the draft, I should have realized and just paid more attention and remembered that they have no true center behind J.C. Treader, and so it yeah. makes sense for them to take a, a swing player that can project a, as backup center and also a guard. You know, I was giving a little bit too much credence to when Freddie Kitchens last year said that he liked Drew Forbes' uh, his snapping ability. He did say that at one point, and maybe that's the case, but still you want a player that's experienced at center to come in and just be the backup for Treader while also providing depth at those other spots. But um, yeah, at the Combine, what made me excited about this pick was at the Combine when I was, I remember watching the interior offensive linemen move around in drills. And uh, you just, you know, you see them all move around and, and you can just glean little things from it. And, uh, and he was the smoothest by far. And immediately I just figured, because I didn't know anything else about him really, I didn't know the class very well. I just figured he was going to be a first or second round center or, or guard because just the way he moved around, he just looks like such a fluid athlete, such a mm-hmm. smooth mover on the field. I was like, man, that's a guy that's going to go early. And uh, I saw some other people talk about how how well he moved around too. And then obviously that just didn't play out. And I think the reason he fell is because he's, he's just not big. He's like 295 pounds. Like I get that he got up to 300 for the combine, but still he's probably a player that lived more at 290, 295. But the Browns value movement skills in the wide zone scheme. It just, it makes a lot of sense. And, um, yeah, you know, people look at the center position typically and, and just interior offensive linemen and, and the shorter guys like Harris, who's only six, one, they get pigeonholed more at center. Um, I think, I think it's possible that he could play some guard in the division. Uh, it's a division. I know that teams are in sub packages a lot, but in the division, there are, these are three, four teams and they have big nose tackles. So having that undersized player right away, just, you know, throwing him in a center probably wouldn't be a great idea. <laughs> Whereas he's not going to be covered quite as often by the big player. If he's at right guard, for example, I don't see him. I don't see him starting right away, but I can see where he would maybe be able to, you know, fit in that role at right guard long-term. Um, it seems much more likely that he's going to provide depth at center, provide get depth at both guard spots. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I also know that his grade in the wide in wide zone, you know, on run plays, his run blocking grade was really up near the top. I think he might have been fourth in the nation in run blocking grade on wide zone plays, and just makes a lot of sense. You can see he's just 
very natural, good athlete. His height kind of helps him get leverage on, you know, on blocks and stuff. He doesn't play high because he can't, he's short. Um, so I, I like him and, and yeah, maybe in three years, if, if Treader leaves, cause he's got the three-year deal and I don't think the Browns could really get out of it for three years. Also, it would be very challenging for that to happen. So I could see him maybe being the center after Treader moves on, but uh, between now and then, it seems much more likely that he would either have to fill in at guard or just provide depth. But either way, I think it's a really solid selection in the fifth round. And I loved watching him move around. I mean, just a very, very natural athlete. And I think that's something they they clearly value in this in this offense. Yeah. Besides his um, besides his move in uh, his ability to get around and really um, like just the way he operated in space was re- very impressive uh, for sure. That really stood out, despite not being the biggest guy, like you said, or the longest arms. But and maybe this is coincidental, but like Wills and Phillips and Harris, like these guys play like pissed off, like they're mean, like Wills is a Wills is a son of a bitch. Like he is not ha- like you if you're lined up against him, he hates you like Phillips kind of has some of that, too. And I, and Harris Harris seems like the like maybe he's always been the you know, of course, he's a big guy, but not the biggest guy like and he's used to facing, you know, maybe some bigger interior talent, uh, you know, across from him. And so. Like, he just looks like the guy that's not going to get, you know, like, you're not whipping me. I don't care how big you are. I don't, you know, I'm not going to lose. Like, even if he loses, he comes back harder. So maybe it's a little bit of a theme with that. But yeah, Harris was definitely a, um, I really like this pick too. It was one of the guys that I had ranked. And uh, admittedly, I was probably, uh, Ruiz was too low on and Cushenberry as well. But but Harris definitely showed up a lot. So I liked him. I was really happy when the Browns took him as well. Yeah, I think, uh <laughs> Real quick before we move on to the last pick of the Browns, Brendan, at one point you said you don't think like in the division with um, these nose tackles that he'd want to play center. Um, I don't know that Cameron Hayward and uh, Brendan Williams are that scary at three fifty a piece. I mean that's just a, I mean that's just another dude on the street right there. But well, DJ Reader was just brought in. Too. Oh God, I, mean, I forgot. Three hundred thirty-five pounds. Yeah. All, Thank all God, is, Michael is, Pierce is gone. Those, yeah, those three teams just always look for those huge nose tackles. Like yeah. Pittsburgh just lost Javon Hargrave, but I'm sure that they have another player behind him that's probably massive. They just like having a lot of a lot of ass in the middle of the D line, yeah. and that's where <laughs> I was thinking in this scheme I could see Harris playing guard, even though he's undersized for that position. From just if you were to ask, you know, an O line guru, if you asked him, hey, can a six one guy play guard? Usually they would say no, but with that nuance and with with some of that information about, you know, the division they're in, the scheme, maybe you'd rather have the guy that's a little bigger and treader at center. And then Harris, maybe he can play guard because in, in this yeah. offense and then this division, if you're facing a zero and and two more like four techniques, you know, guys that line up over the tackles. Just on some downs, it wouldn't be an every down thing, but there's opportunities for him to just immediately get to the second level get after linebackers in space and that really plays into his wheelhouse. So it's just something to consider when, when looking at the pick. Yeah. I forgot about that reader pickup. This, if that, if the Bengals had a second pass rusher, cause you know, outside rat pass rusher, cause obviously Geno Atkins is one of the best interior defensive linemen, but Sam Hubbard's, you know, came into his own, especially for the value that they got him in that draft. Um, you know, the, I mean, the Bengals are making steps in the right direction. I still think they're quite a bit away. Like, you know, they're creeping back towards average with that offensive line, but still maybe not an, quite enough protection. You're, you're, you know, you're flipping a coin with Jonah Williams being able to play. But anyway, the Bengals, I, I think, have done a pretty good job the past few years. Um, and then the last pick, 
Uh, I just complimented the Bengals. Now I'm going to compliment Michigan. So all these Browns and Bucknuts are going to go absolutely crazy. But um, I've been, I have a good friend that's a Michigan fan, and I've been telling him for the past year, like I think Donovan Peoples Jones in the right system has a chance to be really good in the NFL. He's an athletic freak. Urban Meyer, I just watched this on Letterman Row on uh, YouTube said that the best player he ever watched in high school at any position was Donovan Peoples-Jones, and it broke his heart when he didn't get him. And I'm not going to sit here and say that Shea Patterson and Harbaugh were the reason that Donovan Peoples-Jones didn't, um, you know, produce in college. Maybe a little bit. I mean, I have eyes. Shea Patterson was a pretty bad quarterback. And quarterback before him i can't even think of his name that got destroyed at iowa he's not very like they have struggled at quarterback but what we did so production aside what we do know about donovan people's jones is that he had a 45 inch vertical is the 99th percentile for his broad jump uh he has 34 inch arms i believe it might be 33 he has 33 and a half inch arms with 10 and um uh 10 inch hands basically six two and he ran a 4-4-40. So he has all these physical traits. Now, really, going to the right system is what is going to, like, what, how we're going to know if he's ever going to be everything. If it's the reason he can't, you know, separate from corners is why he didn't produce. And the great thing for him is he's in a system where the two other receivers that he's going to be on the field with are two of the better receivers in the NFL. So he's not going to get a majority of the defenses. Like they're not going to think about him as much. So he came to the right place. Now it's just like, is he just going to be a return specialist, which even at this pick in the draft is great value to just get a special teams guy. And then if he can turn that at crazy athletic ability, I mean, he might be the most athletic guy in this draft into four red zone touchdowns a year or something. I mean, that's way overshooting what you want in a six round pick. So I don't know. I love this pick. I think Nico Collins is going to have the same problem next year is that people are going to underdraft him because of quarterback play. I think both of them are very great wide receivers. I mean, very, I don't want to say great, very great prospects. Yeah, very talented just people. And then also something that I forgot to mention with every draft pick is every single one of these guys are great off the field. Like, not just like, oh, yeah, they're good people. They haven't stolen credit cards like a certain Browns player from a year ago or whatever. But like these are 4.0. Some of them are 4.0 students. They're all on the dean's list. Um, I can't remember which one, but one of them like, you know, traveled the country and built homes uh, for Houses for Humanity or uh, whatever organization they're working for. Like, they're bringing in quality characters who have freakish athletic ability or something that they do great and i just i just love this pick to be honest i don't know i can't put it into words like i just think this is a great value six round pick yeah um i like the pick i think that initially you know they're gonna hope that he competes with jojo natson and if he takes that job immediately that would be a big deal because then it saves you the roster spot on natson i think it's more likely that probably natson's a returner for 2020 and then uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones takes that job the following year. Yeah. Uh, you also hope that he can cover, you know, cover kicks and punts. I know that he did did that quite a bit in, at Michigan um, earlier on in his career, but he has shown a willingness to cover kicks, and, and that's very valuable in a late round receiver, also. And you want 
you want your late round receivers to be good athletes because you want them to have that ability to contribute on special teams and stand out. So if he can do that, that also saves them a roster spot because Kaderil Hodge is one of their gunners. And so if he can do that, that's that's just another spot that kind of you're saved. You don't need that gunner just kind of just to, just to make your team for special teams. And you don't need your punt return to just that to be his only job. And that's so that's the first thing that I think he needs to do is to, you know, compete for the punt returner job, also provide that ability on special teams. Um, just as a receiver, clearly explosive with the ball in his hands. Um Definitely not a very polished route runner. They they used him as a Z receiver a lot. So, you know, he's off their line of scrimmage a lot, which is smart for him because he's just not very good against press coverage. Uh, not a very nuanced route runner. So they would put him in motion a lot, and that makes sense because then you can give him, you know, you can give him bubbles, screens, jet sweeps, things like that, get him in space. I think that's the type of plan that they'll have for him if he plays early. Uh, I, I view him as more of a Z receiver, definitely not you know, the freaky X type that you want isolated against the corner. Um, this isn't like, I get that he tested like, like an athletic freak, but I would compare his athleticism um, as a receiver with what he looks like on the field, more like Juju Smith Schuster. I think that's oh, wow. more of what he looks like. And, and Juju didn't test very well compared no. to DPJ. Mm-hmm. So Juju's a so very that, on the field type of guy. He did yeah, not test but, well but at he, all. he yeah, and another thing with Juju is like he was dominant at USC, and then he all of a sudden had this injury. I think he like broke his foot or something like that, and that really hurt. That might have even hurt his testing. Honestly, I've wondered that because if you watch him on the field, he's clearly a much better athlete. But Juju is a guy that doesn't get off press well, so they keep him at Z. They use him as a big slot. I think DPJ fits into that type of a role where you want him off the line of scrimmage. You want to be able to motion him, shift him, get the ball in his hands quick on screens, let him run slants. Um, just scheme him open that that's kind of what you can do with, with players that play in the middle of the field as slot receivers. You can just scheme them open. Um, but he needs to work on like for one, his hands, you know, he's had issues with drops. He's had issues with focus. Um, and also just the route running from a technical standpoint, I wouldn't be completely shocked if he was their Z receiver when they're in 11 personnel this year. Uh, just, just for example, like Ola BC Johnson was, he was a seventh round pick for the Vikings last year. And he, uh, he was the third receiver for the Vikings and, and that speaks to their lack of depth at receiver, but the <laughs> Browns now are in, in that type of a position where it's going to be Ratley, DPJ, DJ Montgomery, Jamon Moore, you know, Taewon Taylor, Kaderil Hodge. Like we don't really know with any of those players exactly if they can bring anything to the table. So I think he will get opportunities to compete and try to earn a role. Um, But yeah, long-term you just, I think you hope that he's really good on special teams. And then if he gives you anything offensively, that's like a huge bonus. Like if this player became a wide receiver, like the third or fourth receiver for the team, that's that's huge in the sixth round because it's much more likely in his range of outcomes that he's more of just the fifth or sixth receiver that's a special teamer. Yep. Yeah, I agree. All I'll add is that uh, I think that with players this late, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh round, like, and especially from schools like Michigan, like LSU, Alabama, Ohio State, where you know that these these are fairly, you know, maybe three, four, well, probably not three, four or five star recruits. Um, you know, they're they're going to get several offers. Like when they don't quite have the college resumes that you'd like to see, and they end up falling to the fifth, sixth, seventh round. Like, I just want to be able to can I can I look at his play 
uh, or the teams play. And can I explain away some of the things? Like, are there some reasons why we didn't see, you know, why did we not see a 1,700-yard season from, you know, DPJ? Like, okay, because Shea Patterson was one of the, you know, it was a very middling quarterback at best for the entire season. And Jim Harbaugh's fascination with running Big Ten offenses from 1983, you know, is just, it it, it hurts. It hurts the it receivers. Literally so, run first and second down, try to throw on third, which just every yeah. single I, I do think they... They did some good things with him, though. You know, when you watch the film, like they they would get the ball in his hands on screens. Like mm-hmm. they were clearly aware of his limitations with the way that they used him. And and I I understand fully the quarterback deal. Like that that's a hundred percent a thing. Um, but I think that he would have been he would have been a more dominant player if he would have showed those traits at the college level. Yes, because we have seen that over the years. Like Christian Hackenberg was horrible. Like even <laughs> his freshman year, he was horrible. And Allen Robinson still just dominated people and, right. and elevated him to a point where he was getting hype. And eventually, the Jets bought into it and took him in the second round. But he was always bad, even yep. as a freshman. And I think you you see that with those like dominant dominant receivers where they can overcome that. And and uh, he, like I talked about, uh, Harrison Bryant being an overachiever earlier. Well. To this point, DPJ has been more of an underachiever, and now it's yeah. on the Browns coaching staff to get that out of him and make sure that he turns into a player that can optimize his talent level and really show it on the field. Um, yeah. I know that earlier you asked me to kind of talk about other players that the Browns didn't take and why they might have taken the guys that they did. Well, just comparing to K.J. Hill, like hmm. K.J. Hill, um, people are going to think that this is – you know, again, they're probably going to get tired of the arm length thing, but he had 29 inch arms. Like this is a player that plays small. He's six feet tall, but ran a four six. Wow. He is pigeonholed in the slot. He is a <laughs> slot receiver. He's not playing outside. You don't want another player that's pigeonholed in the slot like Landry. Like Landry does play Z receiver because, like he's he's honestly an overachiever. Like with his work ethic and the things that he does, because he ran like a four seven at the combine. But he is, you know, he he's a worker. He grinds it out, but. Landry is a much more physically talented player than KJ Hill is. And I wasn't surprised at all that KJ Hill fell to the seventh round. I liked him a lot at Ohio state. I mean, very good route runner, very good hands, um, productive over the middle of the field. Uh, when, when he was schemed open, you know, or if he beat a guy up the seam, he could catch deep balls, but they knew what they had again, like the way that they used him. It's kind of like what I just said about Michigan, the way that they used DPJ Well, Ohio state, they had KJ Hill in the slot. They used him in the slot. They had other guys to play outside. Like he is a slot receiver, and the Browns needed someone that was versatile that could win outside, potentially down the road. You know, this is a long-term move, but they needed someone that projected that way, that had those traits that can win, win outside, give you something on special teams. Where KJ Hill, I mean, if he's running down on punt coverage, like that doesn't scare me much. Like as a, like in the NFL, you know, just his physical traits are not very impactful and also dpj also gives you that skill set potentially as a punt returner which is very valuable as well that mm-hmm. two-way ability that kj hill doesn't bring so there was just a lot of reasons why i thought this pick made sense uh for what the browns needed to add a wide receiver next to obj and landry long term versus adding just just a pigeonholed slot guy and kj hill that you can sign very similar players off the street to kj hill at any point in time that can yep. just give you some slot snaps and give you some production from the slot. No, that's yeah. a good point. That's a very good point. Um, and s- something. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. No, just all I was going to say is, you know, I guess like if I have, if I'm going to take a shot on a sixth round wide receiver, 
and he's 6'2", 210, and is a freak athlete and just didn't perform well at a big school, like, yeah, I'll take my shot on that guy all day long in the sixth round, no problem. So, Yeah. I mean, I could probably jump a 45-inch vertical, too. I just I don't want to get tested, and I refuse to get tested. But we'll How just say I could jump chair there. that you're standing on? You're standing on, like, a 22-inch chair? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't oh. matter. Oh, okay. Um, okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I you don't know. I mean, OBJ is obviously one of the best route runners in the NFL. You don't know. I don't know how like you know no players ever come out and said like you know Odell helped teach me this. All teammates of Odell have loved him, but you also wonder if having Odell Beckham Jr. there like in the same room as you can help like, hey, do this when I when I see this, this is what I do when I feel this with the defender. This is like just that little thing. And then, but uh, Brendan, I don't want to keep you here all night. So do you have time for one? big glaring free agent question that just is hovering over the Browns. And I am on the opposite end of every of the Twitter verse. We'll say. Yes, or. Okay. So everyone in the state of Ohio seems to really want this kid named Jadavian Clowney. I understand he's an absolute freak of nature. He's pretty, he's pretty damn good against the run. But my problem is I don't think you can get him on a team friendly deal that would not like, overlap the signing of maybe if you can get Njoku for seven or eight million dollars somehow on extension but Baker Mayfield is going to need to get paid Miles Garrett's going to need to get paid all these players that are you know of a just uh I mean Miles Garrett to Jadavian Clowney there's not a steeper drop-off like that's just absolutely two different planets so I am on the board of like just sticking with Olivier Vernon if he stays healthy you have a damn good pass rusher of uh, above average run defender and you got a good defensive end there obviously you know not for a very good value he's getting paid six 15 60 million dollars a year or whatever but i guess what are your thoughts on a davian Clowney and the browns pairing up um i don't think it moves the needle that much and i think that the price unless it's just a one-year deal like the only way i would be interested in it would be a one-year deal but I, I don't think it moves the needle much compared to Vernon. Like, I think people are really, really overvaluing the difference. And um, if they can't get a physical on him, like that's really significant because he's had micro fracture knee surgery before. And that's a huge, that's a huge red flag. And I get that Vernon has had issues with injuries the past few years, but they need to do a better job with load management on those guys, especially with Vernon and making sure that he's, you know, rotating in and out of the game and just, kept healthy. Uh, I just, I don't think it makes that big a difference on the field and I wouldn't want to sign him long-term because if you want to give him like a bunch of money over three or four years, like that really prohibits you from having a ton of cal- salary cap flexibility as far as re-signing Baker Mayfield, re-signing Denzel Ward, Miles Garrett, other players that they've drafted the past few years like Najoku. And then also what you alluded to earlier, which is with those extra picks, with the Browns now being in a mode where they would like to make the playoffs and compete in the next one to two to three years in that time frame, um, you need to have cap space to absorb those contracts if you're going to trade a fourth or fifth round pick for a player like Calais Campbell, for example. If you don't have that cap space, you can't make those deals. Um, And that's something the Browns, I think, are going to be exploring in the next few years, because if you look at next offseason, it really lines up for them to make those types of moves because they're going to have a ton of players come off the books. It's going to be I think it's going to be between 20 and 25 players because of all these one year deals that they have and all these players that are impending free agents like Larry Ogunjobi, for example. And 
So they're going to be in a position where they don't want to sign a bunch of free agents next offseason because they want to get the comp picks. They're going to want to get the comp picks in 2022. And so next offseason, it's going to make sense for them to, instead of attack that free agent market, they're going to be signing players that are cut. They're going to be signing players at this time frame now that don't impact the compensatory formula. And they're going to be trading for veterans with, with late round picks and absorbing them into their cap space. And, and doing and this is something that New England's done over the years, Baltimore's done over the years, Philadelphia, very cap-savvy teams that are very analytically driven. Once you get to that point in the building process, you start to value you know, making those deals that don't impact your compensatory formula as you're letting all these other players exit the building. Um, just one more note on that also is the, the Browns, I think, lead the league. They're like tied with one other team and in, in, uh, if you look at the construction of their roster, players that weren't drafted by the Browns, that's a huge problem. And that's why the Browns haven't had any compensatory picks recently, because when you don't draft well and you don't have that stability over time and you're not keeping the same coaching staff and keeping these day three players, for example, that should be providing depth for you, you're cutting them. And now you have to replace that player with a free agent. That free agent you signed impacts your compensatory formula and they cost more on the salary cap. So next offseason is the, tr- the offseason where they need to transition from bringing in all these guys from other teams, from other situations that were drafted by other teams, and start filling up this roster with players from the past couple drafts and making sure that the percentage of the roster that they drafted that are all homegrown players is much higher of a percentage. Because at this point, they're at the bottom of the league because of just all the turmoil and turnover over the years. Yeah. Phenomenal point. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I understand a subject and then Brendan comes on and I'm like, oh, okay. So I didn't know it well enough. Like I was getting a little bit of a lesson, but uh, I think those are great points. And that's something that has, I mean, they have to find stability before we can start talking like Super Bowl hopes. It's got to be stability before even playoff hopes. Like if Stefanski and Barry and Deep Podesta stay the head of this ship and they have some stability in that they have stability in those late round draft picks staying around for the compensatory formula and all like all those things mash up into winning formulas. I mean, you named Baltimore, New England, Philadelphia. Like I would kill for the Browns to be any of those three organizations. Like they're very well ran. They, they do very well in the draft. They do very well in free agency and trading. They almost always win their trades. Like, Baltimore Ravens just got one of the best pass rushers in the league for a fifth round pick. Like that's the kind of things that you can do when you're an organization like that. But, uh, and that's because they had extra picks and because they had the salary cap space to take it on because they had drafted well. Yeah. Yeah. And then by doing that, they filled the literally the only hole on their roster. Like it's hard right now to find even a, like maybe linebacker because they're kind of taking a coin flip with a guy like Patrick queen, but, uh, they're only, deficiency last year was getting to the quarterback without a blitz and i think calais campbell might help that just move the needle just a little bit on that one but uh man brendan thank you so much i don't have any other questions for you i think you i think they're gonna like the listeners are gonna love this it was absolutely great like john said it's hard to find someone who is a grew up a fan of the browns but still understands the game in such great detail and is such a fair evaluator of what a team does. Like, I think you do a great job of that. And, uh, yeah, thank you for joining. Thank you guys. I, I had a great time like always and looking forward to the next time.
Yeah, appreciate it, Brendan. Thanks a lot, man. I think a lot of uh, Browns fans are driving, kind of swerving all over the road on these hot takes and cold takes. And you always find a way to kind of steer the car like right back to the middle of the road. So it's just like, okay, I, I see what's going on over there. I see what's going on over there, but I'm just going to keep things nice and steady in the middle. So I know I appreciate that as a Browns fan and as a, you know, hopeful as an evaluator of, you know, football and everything else. So um, just thank you very much for coming on, for your insight, everything. As always, we really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Take care and stay safe. Yeah, same to you. You guys take care. This podcast is also brought to you by Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is so easy to use. It's simple. It's fast. It's effective. It's the easiest way to distribute your podcast to every major platform and in the quickest way. I've gone through other websites to host podcasts, and it's a pain in the butt. Anchor does it for you. Join Anchor.fm and do your podcast the right way. And if you're looking to start a podcast, contact one of us at ATV Sports as we're looking for podcasters for nearly every professional sports team right now. If you think you'd be a good fit, you can also apply at our website, www.atbsports.net. Across the Board Sports is brought to you by Thrive Fantasy. Daily prop bets for all kinds of sports where thousands of dollars are up for grabs every single day. Want free money? Use the code ATB at sign up for a free $10. Download the free app in the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. And don't forget, use the code ATB at sign up for a free $10. Across the Board Sports, unique sports coverage.